The scripture reading this morning is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, which can be found on page 844 of your pew Bible. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Jesus Christ.
What do you read in there? And the man replied to him, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all your mind. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Jesus is obviously very impressed with this in some ways. Like, oh, well, that sounds great. You've given the right answer. You just do that and you're going to be fine. You almost imagine Jesus saying that as he turns around to him too. Just do that and you'll be fine. But the man, it says, wanting to justify himself, wanting to know for sure if he's good, wanting to know if he's able to get by. Now, maybe he was trying to get by on the minimum. Like, can you just kind of tell me, Jesus, what is the minimum that I need to do so that I know that I'm good here? Wanting to justify himself, the man says, ah, Jesus, wait, wait, wait. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Ah, Jesus, he turned back around his heels and looked at him. Let me tell you a story. And I love when Jesus does that. Like somebody asks him a big question like that, like, wait, wait, wait. But who is my neighbor? And without even answering the question, he just starts to go, there was a man traveling down a road. I love when he does that. Before we get into that part of the story, which we're going to spend the next four weeks in, picking into walking, like I said, step by step of what is it? What is it? How do we become that neighbor? How do we live and love the people around us? How do we be a neighbor? I want to put this in some context here because this parable is a very special parable. It's one that I think shows a great sense of the breadth and depth of the call for us to be as Christians. How do we inherit eternal life? How do we make sure we're right with God? How do we know that we're in his will? How, do we, how can we trust that we're going to be there when he calls? One thing about this parable that I think people don't catch a lot is the context of it connects two things together. One would be the great commandment. As the man even answered, you shall love the Lord your God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. This is called the great commandment. And it's the great commandment because it's really the summary of God's whole word. If you want to boil it down to one thing, of course there's more, but if you want to boil it down to the one thing, it all kind of radiates out of this great commandment. Now you have to look at that word commandment though very quickly because a commandment is something that demands a response. Parents, think about it. When you say to your kids, will you go and clean your room? That's a commandment. They have then an option. They can either obey your commands or choose not to obey. They might hold it off for a while if that's a third option. But really, when it comes to commandments, there's either obedience or not obedience. And we're given this great commandment to love the Lord our God with the fullness of our being in such a way that encourages us to love the people around us. We can either obey or not obey. But here's the exciting thing, and we're going to see this in this parable of the next couple of weeks. It links us to commission. Great commission, you know, is what we've been talking about for the last seven weeks. We've been talking about everyday mission. How do we live and love people in a way that creates opportunities for us to share the love of God with the people around us, maybe even the grace of Christ, and invite them to experience everything in the kingdom. This is given to us, this is a co-mission, this is a shared mission. And here's my premise, and you're going to see this in this parable over the next four weeks. When 
we obey the great commandment, when we're obedient to that, it will give us, by nature, opportunities to participate in the Great Commission. When we obey the Great Commandment, love the Lord our God, everything we are, and from that filling, love the people around us, we will have more opportunities to participate in the Great Commission. Why do we want to do that? Because that's when things get really exciting. If you're ever someone, and I struggle with this too sometimes, where your faith just feels like flat, where you're like, I believe the things, but I just don't feel it. I just don't know if I'm connecting to it. I don't know if it's my passion. One of the problem is because we're, we're destined as people of God to take the love he gives us and share it with people around us. When you start doing that, even in a little way, he'll dump it more and more, and you'll start to feel and find yourself much more deeply invested in the kingdom. It really gets exciting when the people around you start to feel the love of God from you and through you and even find him themselves. It's amazing. It's a game changer. It's eternal life. And Jesus knew that. That's why it's embedded here in this parable, the link between the great commandment and our opportunities to share in the great commission. And so it begins this way. We have Jesus now telling a story. And I love this. He goes, well, you know, you've given the right answer. You do that and live. And the man wanting to justify him says, Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replies, ah, I have a story for you. There was a man and he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. The setting of the story, before we even get going, is worthy of looking into. Let me pray as we open up God's Word, by the way, this parable, because I really wanted to press into your heart as it's been igniting mine. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the gift of your Word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for speaking these words out some 2,000 years ago to a man who came to you. Now, maybe there was a sense of pride about him, but he asked the question that we'd all want to ask. How do we know? We have this gift of eternal life. How can we be sure? Thank you, Jesus, for your interaction with him. Thank you, Jesus, for telling this great story, this parable. And Lord, I pray that just as it may have in its original setting, that it would open up to us the reality of your great love. Speak to us by your word, I pray right now, in Jesus' name, amen. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is roughly about 17 miles of, of pretty downward hike. It's a, it's, a, it's a high elevation to a low elevation. It's also a very rocky path. And if any of you have ever done any hiking, you know actually the potential to be injured is greater on a decline than it is on an incline. You're more likely to roll and stumble your ankle on a steep decline than you are hiking up a hill. So this idea of going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, from up above to you know, below sea level, was a treacherous path just on the hike. However, it was also a path with a lot of up and down and turns and rocky uh, crevices where robbers and thieves were known to, to hang out at the time. It was a dangerous path. And so when Jesus put the parable in the setting, it was like, ah, there was a man walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. Everybody knew that was a dangerous road. You were more likely to get into trouble walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. Everyone knew that there were lots of places there that robbers and thieves and worse, bandits would hang out. 
Everyone understood that it was a very dangerous, dangerous past. Friends, let me step out of the story for just a moment and remind us that we actually all live on a dangerous past. There is something about us. We, too, live on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, we're here, and some of us live on maybe streets that are well-groomed and safe. You know, I read the police blotter in my neighborhood, too, and it's maybe occasionally a car gets kind of, you know, ransacked in the middle of the night, but it was unlocked. Or here in Hinsdale, not much really happens. Occasionally a car gets taken, but the keys were left in it. (laughs) This happened to you? (laughs) But the truth is we all live, we all walk on Jericho Road. We hear that echoed each week in the prayers as we're calling for God to bring healing and release and blessing and help us in, in our sufferings and those we love. But we also live in a world that is very dangerous. We have an enemy that Jesus talked about, a great enemy, who is there prowling around in the shadows like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, be the weak ones. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, that the enemy would be there to steal, to kill, and destroy. What's he going to steal? Well, maybe the money out of your pockets. We're always worried about losing that. But actually what the enemy is more destined to steal is your identity. He wants to steal your identity as a child of God. He wants to steal your identity that you are a son and daughter of the Most High God who loves you, who formed you, who destined you, who crafted you in his very image for good things, who has a plan for your life that's good and can be trustworthy. The enemy wants to steal that from you. What does he want to destroy? He wants to, what does he want to kill? He wants to kill your confidence. That that God who loves you is trustworthy because the trials of your life will cause you to start looking up and then he'll whisper in your ear, you know, see, he's not good enough. He's not good enough. Don't trust him. He wants to kill your confidence in God's promises. What does the enemy want to destroy? our sense of destiny, that sense that one day we will have a world in which all of these things, all these dangers have passed, and we will live in fellowship with God always and ever to his glory. The enemy would love to destroy that sense of destiny in you. How do we know? How do we know we live and walk, all of us, on a dangerous path? I think it's embedded in our natural greeting. I think we sense it deep in our heart, which is why, friends, one of the most natural greetings when you meet someone or pass someone or or even talk to a friend at work or school is, hey, how are you doing? How's it going? How have you been? Why do we ask that question? Do we really care? Often not. We just want to hear what? Good. Yeah, fine, good, I'm good, I'm good. I think we naturally ask that question of each other. Hey, how are you doing? How's it going? Hey, you all right? It's because deep in our heart, we know this world isn't right. We know there's struggle. We know there's hurt. We know there's pain. We know there's oppression. We know there's an enemy 
that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. How you doing? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Deep in our heart, we know there's something busted about this world. That's why we keep asking each other so naturally, how you doing? How have you been? How's it going? Back to the story. This is why it's no surprise that this man who was traveling this dangerous path from Jerusalem to Jericho, ah, he fell among the hands of robbers. Of course he would. Who wouldn't? It was a dangerous path. But they stripped him of all his clothes. They beat him to a pulp and they went away. And the word says they left him there half dead. Half dead. Half dead means as good as dead. He was on his way to dying. Wasn't dead yet. But think about this man that Jesus tells this story of. Traveling a dangerous path. Falls himself into the hands of robbers. They literally strip him naked, take everything he's got, and leave him there bleeding out, half dead. The story continues in verse 31. It says, now by chance, just by happenstance, there's a priest that's going down the road, and when he saw the man lying there, he passed him on the other side of the road. He passed him. It's interesting that the priest was shown to be walking there by chance. Eh, just, just going by. No real intentionality to his walk. It just, oops, hey, look at that. There's a guy beating up on the side of the road. I'm going to take the wide path around that one. Likewise, he said, there's a Levite, another official of the church. He's going down, away from Jerusalem. He looks at the man, and actually in the word it says he stopped. When he got to the place that he was and he saw him, he decided to go around the wide path. Again, the subtlety in there is that the, the Levite most likely actually came to the place where the man was laying, maybe even had a look at him at some proximity and thought, nope, not touching that. He also went around the wide path. Now, people have made excuses for these guys saying, well, if they had touched him, would they be unclean? The fact is that they're heading away from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jesus had this in mind. Their work was done. They had no excuse. What they lacked was love. They walked around the wide path. We'll just ignore them for now. Stepping back out of the story again, for us, friends, we can do this so easily. We can easily step around the wide path. We see people that are hurting and suffering, and we know there's something going on in their lives, but we just take the wide path and walk around. I'm too busy for that. I don't have time. I got to keep moving. We can so easily and naturally go around the wide path and avoid people who are hurting, who we sense that God has shown us that, man, they could, use some, they could use some love, they could use some help. And we so naturally go around the wide path to avoid them. We pretend they don't exist. We might just believe they're lost causes. They're as good as dead. They're half dead. We can live our lives quite naturally, thinking that people around us are basically half-dead people. Think about it. The next time you go to a restaurant and someone's waiting on you, that's a fully alive person, maybe with some ache and pain, but we treat them as if they're half-dead. What about the person that uh, you pass when you, 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 on the train? We just walk around them as if they're half-dead. We just can get so used to ignoring people and ignoring even family friends that are hurting, and we get used to walking around the wide path. 
we sometimes even get annoyed with them. And we say things like, oh, move it. You idiot. This happens in the road. Get out of my way. You idiot. Why are these people in my path? We can so easily go about our day and pretend that everyone around us is a non-person or half-dead and they're inconvenient to us and idiots that we need to deal with, that we'd prefer not to deal with. We start to look at whole groups of people, neighborhoods, people in the world as lost causes. They're as good as dead. This is what's so fascinating and refreshing about a guy like Mr. Rogers. This is what's so fascinating about him. He didn't look at people as half-dead. He wanted everyone to be his neighbor. And I think one of the things that made the show so distinctive, so refreshing, is the way that he got to know even common people on the show. I mean, here, here's an African-American police officer at a time when African-American police officers, there weren't many of them and they weren't very respected, but he took time to soak in a friendship with this guy and demonstrate that so clearly for everyone. Or how about that, that moment when he had the, the handicapped boy from Wisconsin on? Didn't treat him like a half person. He said, tell me about you. Tell me about that wheelchair. Oh, you sure do a great job with that. Can you tell us more? What's it like? What's it like? He didn't treat people as if they were half alive or not worth their time. He invested in them. He asked them questions. He was slow about it because he wanted to know about them. Tell me about you. So this is, as we continue in the story, where Jesus leaves us. Now, you have a Samaritan, and it's been known that the Samaritan is one who would be despised. But he looks at this man, and he sees value. And again, this is what Mr. Rogers and what Jesus would have us do. Not just look at people as half dead, but instead see the value of life in each one that, that God places around us. See, when we're in Christ and we're filled with his love, we don't look at people as half dead. We look and we say, I still see life here. Continuing the story, that's what the Samaritan does. He goes to the man who's laying there on the side of the road. He came to that place, he saw him, and he was moved with pity. There was something in the Samaritan's heart where others walked around the wide path and saw someone who was as good as dead. The Samaritan journeyed. Again, a subtlety in the language, but it says that the Samaritan walked with intentionality. He was on a journey. He was, he was on a mission. Unlike the priest and the Levite who were traveling there by chance, the Samaritan was there journeying, traveling. When he came to where the man was, he looked at him and he said, you know, where others see death, I see a life here worth saving. This is to a man who's laying there, body broken, bleeding out, stripped, naked, nothing to offer, as good as dead. What does a neighbor do? Looks at that and goes, you know what? I see a life here worth saving. So our first step, friends, to, on this road is to be a companion, to share the road. It's a dangerous path, but to share the road with God, the people that God places around us, to be a companion, a fellow traveler, a journey person, 
someone who, who shares the road that God has placed us on, knowing that it's a dangerous road, but to be a companion, to walk with people that God places around us with intentionality, not just by chance, not seeing people as half dead, but walking with intentionality, say, I see life here. To be a companion means we walk humbly, knowing that we're all on a dangerous path. We're all on a dangerous path. And we're humble about it. And when we ask people around us, hey, how you doing? We actually listen for the answer. Uh, I'm pretty good. Did you hear that? Wait, how are you really doing? Because we share the road. We see life where others might just see no one or nothing worth value. And we look for opportunities to share the love of God that he has shown us so abundantly. That's what it means to be a companion. Of course, at the end of this story, back to the lawyer again, he looks at Jesus after hearing this call to be a companion, and we're going to continue to unpack this parable over the next three weeks because there's more. There's so much more. But he says, Jesus says, which one of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The man said, I think it was the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Go and please, won't you be a neighbor? Let me pray over us and then invite you into a prayer of repentance, a washing in a sense, so that when we go to communion, we can be filled fresh by his body and blood. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our constant companion on this dangerous road that we travel. And even when we were far off and forgotten, you drew near. You became to us our rescuer and our redeemer. And Lord, while we were still far off, we were still sinners. They are dead in our sins and our transgressions. You died for us. So that in you, we can have forgiveness of our sins and the assurance of eternal life. You also give us your Holy Spirit to lead us in doing your will. But Lord, you know, you know our hearts. You know this is a glory in which we fall short. So together here in this sacred space, we confess our sin to you, asking you to cleanse us and encourage us as we pray together, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have not done. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and desire to live a new way. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may serve you with joy and see life in others as you do so that you are glorified in this broken and beautiful world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.